Hello my lovelies and welcome back to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. Um, I'm so sorry that I haven't been on here for a while. I've been away, life has been super busy. Um, I had a lovely long holiday in Ibiza and came back with a ring on a certain finger. So lots of planning is taking place at the moment, which is very exciting, but at the same time, so time consuming. Um, So that's been going on. Um, We also unfortunately lost one of our dear guinea pigs, Bart. So that is also something that I've been processing. Um, It was just so sudden and absolutely heartbreaking, but, you know, we're glad that he's in a better place, no longer in pain. So yeah, it's been a really full on few months and I've just had to take some time for myself to kind of process, sort myself out, but I am back and I have missed you all. Um, So I'm going to stop rambling about my life and get on to today's case. So today's case is a truly special one. Um, It's about a man named Everett Delano. Now, Everett was working at a gas station when one day he was found shot in the head and subsequently passed away. Now, this case eventually turned into a cold case, but after new technology and persistence from investigators, this case was solved 53 years later. Now, before we get into the case, as always, I just want to state that everything I talk about today is just information I have found online, and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned And today's episode does include mention of suicide, so if this is something that you are not comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the murder of Everett Delano. So it's safe to say that Everett Delano was a very busy man. Between working security as an overnight watchman and his part-time shifts at a combo gas station and mechanic shop, he was doing like 60 hours a week. So, like I said, very busy. Now at home, Everett had three children, Daryl, Darlene and Denise, and he absolutely worked so hard to provide for them. Now, Everett and his family moved a fair bit. Uh, They had lived all over the country, from Rhode Island to Florida, California. And this was all due to his work in the US Navy in radar and radio operations. And he actually had a really successful career and achieved the rank of Chief Petty Officer. So he first started serving in 1941 at the outset of World War II and served throughout the war mainly on ships in the Pacific. And the family mostly lived in base housing as they moved around, which meant not only did the places change, but also their friendships. Um, And fun fact, my dad actually used to live in army bases as a kid and moved around a ton. He was born in Singapore and they moved to Germany, stuff like that. And... I've spoken to him about it and he said that he found it really difficult to make friends as he never knew when they were going to be moving so I can imagine that would be quite tough especially for young kids. Um, So Everett would be gone for months at a time when he was out at sea on the ships in the Mediterranean but when he was in town working on base he would have 
regular normal hours, meaning that he could spend a lot more time with his family. So looking for more stability in their living situation, the family decided to move and settle down near his wife's family in Wilmont, New Hampshire, which is a fairly small town that lies between Concord and Lebanon in New Hampshire. And it was in 1964 that Everett retired from the Navy. Now, because Everett was a high-ranking man in the Navy with a lot of authority and responsibility, Daryl, one of his children, thought that he might have been struggling a little bit to adapt to this new way of life. Um, he was looking for he looked for work in radio or TV repairs, but he just couldn't find anything close enough to where they lived. And you know, after an entire career of short commutes whilst living on base. He didn't really want to be commuting like an hour plus to larger nearby towns. So whilst he was still looking for other job opportunities, he worked as a security officer on the night shift at Colby Sawyer College in New London and picked up shifts at a gas station in Andover. September 1st, 1966 started as any normal day would. So Everett got in his car and drove down to Andover to the gas station slash mechanic shop where he worked. So Kenneth Sanborn was the owner of this mechanic shop uh, that was called Sanborn Auto Body. And he was actually partnered with Gulf Oil and had a pretty typical Gulf service station. It had two bay garage attached to a small office area with a walk-up window. And the town's post office was also inside. So it was a hub of activity for this small town. It was a three-in-one, really. Um, so at 8.50 that morning, Kenneth had asked Everett to watch the shop as he was nipping out to run some errands. Now, Everett usually helped in the office to take money from customers. Um, and I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he was in charge of like filling up people's tanks as well. So it was kind of like a whole service, if you will. Um, so it's kind of like any sort of gas station attendant or petrol station, as we would say, over here. So between 8.50 and 9.25am, there was activity every 10 minutes or so, and the cash register showed three sales had gone through. So at 9.25, a local, Marilyn Bacon, who knew Everett, drove past, waved at him as he was backing up a vehicle, and he smiled and waved back. But within the next 10 minutes, somebody robbed Sanborn Autobody and Everett was the only person there at the time. The robber confronted Everett and ran off with all the money that was inside the register, estimated about $75 to $100, but didn't take the cash box hidden below which had an extra $500. Now, a few minutes after this robber left, a white vehicle pulled up and waited for a while, guessing, hoping that the attendant would help them fill their gas tank. But when no one showed up, they grew impatient. And then at 9.45, a couple of guys, Ralph and Bruce, showed up. And they witnessed this white car leave, and the woman driving just kind of looked at them, shrugged her shoulders as if to say, well... You know, I don't know where the attendant is, so I'm leaving, I don't have time for this. But the guys pulled up and they walked to the office, kind of peeked their head around and heard some noise that 
kind of sounded like snoring. Uh, but when they looked round, they saw a man laying face down on the office floor, but they just presumed that maybe he was passed out drunk. So a little closer to 10, um, three more men turned up, Leon, William and Pat. Now Ralph and Bruce were still there and told these new lads that, you know, someone is sleeping inside on the floor. So one of the new lads, Leon, looked into the office and when he did, he saw this man on the floor, but also discovered a pool of blood forming under the man's head and immediately called the police along with the nearest hospital. And as this was happening, Ralph drove to Kenneth's house to get Kenneth's wife and brought her back. Um, and they realised that the cash register drawer was left open and empty. So very quickly, it became clear what had actually happened. A short while after the police and paramedics arrived, um, Everett was transported to New London Hospital where he was stabilised. Now, the police originally thought that he was a victim of a brutal beating, uh, but it wasn't until the doctors discovered that he had actually been shot three times in the head by a 22 caliber handgun. So at this point, Everett was in critical condition and was transferred to a major hospital, the Mary Hitchcock Hospital in Lebanon. But unfortunately, the next day, Everett sadly passed away. The police were still at the crime scene, processing every detail, and in an amazing stroke of luck, nobody turned off the water that had been running in the men's bathroom since the crime scene was discovered. So basically, when Kenneth's wife had arrived, she was careful not to touch or disturb the handles of the um, sink tap, what do you say in America, faucets? Um, so. Either, uh, so she didn't touch any of them to turn the water off. So I think instead she had shut off the water from outside like a pump. So the police believed that the robber may have been the last person to touch these bathroom... What do you even call them? Sink taps? Tap? Um, bathroom tap. Uh, and that would be the perfect place to check the fingerprints. Uh, so the state police crime scene technician worked very carefully and pulled a good quality fingerprint from it. So that was absolutely amazing. Um, and at this time, the police were also interviewing people, kind of canvassing the neighbourhood. They actually found Marilyn, the woman who he had waved to, but they also found another man who claimed that he heard three gunshots as he was driving past. Now, this man estimated the time of the shots to be about 945 However, there was another stroke of luck that showed the police exactly what time these shots had been fired. One of the shots fired at Everett had actually struck through his watch. Now this froze the exact time of the shooting on his watch face and that was 9.35am. An autopsy was also carried out and the medical examiner determined that two of the gunshot wounds to his head had happened whilst Everett was upright and the third um, was shot whilst he was on the ground. Now there was gunpowder residue near the entry wound and this kind of meant that the shot was fired nearly touching his head, like right up against his head. So this tells police that whoever committed this crime was absolutely making sure that there were no witnesses to this crime. 
Six days later, on September 7th, the police sent the fingerprints lifted from the sink tap to the FBI to add to their large national collection. Now, in the months that followed, the state police checked purchase records of 22 caliber firearms and collected a number of guns from people in Andover and a larger vicinity. There were ballistic testing carried out on all of these guns, but none of the guns collected fired the bullets recovered from the scene or the victim. There was also a search in the nearby Blackwater River as the killer could have potentially ditched this weapon, but unfortunately again, this showed nothing. And by the end of 1966, this case had unfortunately turned into a cold case. It's now 1975 and a technology company called Rockwell International won a contract to create five automatic fingerprint readers that were collectively dubbed Finder. They delivered them to the FBI, and in the years that came, the FBI successfully converted 15 million criminal fingerprint cards into digital records. Now, 10 years following this, Rockwell sold systems to many major police departments in the US, and soon the old ink and paper fingerprints were no longer. By 1999, the FBI's database contained fingerprints that identified 64 million individuals and was available on demand to law enforcement around the country. So in 2009, now, the state of New Hampshire formed its cold case unit and they did an inventory of all the unsolved homicides in the state's history, but strangely, Everett's name wasn't on the list. So skipping forward to 2013, Darlene, Everett's youngest daughter, called up and brought it back to their attention, and thank God for Darlene. So now this fingerprint that they found at the crime scene, all those years later, had never been put into this new database. But when investigators submitted them, it came back with a match, and now they had their prime suspect. After cross-checking with the state of police forensics lab, the match was confirmed to be that of Thomas Cass, who would have been 20 years old in 1966. The lab also tested hair that was found in the cash register and a cigarette butt that was found on the ground, but they were unable to pull DNA from either of them. So now a bit more about this Thomas Cass. Now, Thomas was no stranger to the law. He'd actually had 13 convictions between 1966 and 2000 for repeat charges of theft, armed robbery, assault, um, and even escaping prison not once, but twice. And his final conviction was in Vermont in 2000 for manufacturing drugs in prison. So 47 years after the crime, Thomas Cass was finally met with investigators. Now he told them that he had joined the army at 18 in 1963 and left three years later under a general discharge, which in most circumstances means something wasn't quite up to standard. So in 1966, he moved back home to Vermont where he got married and then moved again to Springfield, Massachusetts. They then lived there until 1967 when he was arrested for robbery and funnily enough, uh, well not funnily but this particular robbery was at a gas station and he used a sawed off uh, shotgun as well and there were two other people with him 
Ray Bennett and Frank Hutchins, who were arrested while attempting to flee the scene. Now, although Thomas acknowledged his criminal history, he fully denied having any involvement in Everett's murder and even claimed he didn't know where Andover was and he hadn't even been in the New Hampshire state. However, I mean, I guess he forgot about the time he stole a car and drove it to New Hampshire or the time that he was convicted for two criminal offences in Grafton County District Court, which is also in New Hampshire. So he absolutely had been there. I don't know if he just forgot or if he was lying, but that's what he told investigators. Now, a couple months later, investigators met with Thomas Cass again, where they asked him if he would submit DNA samples to which he agreed, um, but he did refuse a polygraph test. People close to Thomas were also interviewed, uh, including his friends, family, and more importantly, his ex-wife, who told them that Thomas first introduced himself to her as, quote, a businessman and a crook, end quote. His ex-wife had also told them that when they first met, Thomas was working as a roadie for a rock and roll band, Miles Connor and the Wild Ones. Now, Miles Connor, you may recognise his name, but he was also moonlighted as a kind of like an art thief who had robbed museums. And he was actually featured in the Netflix documentary, This Is A Robbery, about the infamous 1990 Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Which, by the way, I would highly recommend watching this if you haven't already. It's very good. Um, and I also have a mini-series about this heist on the Prime for Crime TikTok page. But anyway, Miles Connor was also convicted of a double homicide in 1981, but the conviction was overturned a few years later during a second trial. Now, Miles and Thomas were best buds, if you will, with Miles even mentioning Thomas in one of his books, saying, quote, Tommy Cass, you'll always be my pal, end quote. So maybe not the best pair of friends for, you know, getting into trouble and all that. Now, around this time, Thomas broke into a family's home and terrorised them, which was an incident that, as you guessed, landed him in prison again. And his ex-wife also told investigators that his home life growing up was rough, his father was an alcoholic, and the household was pretty abusive. She said that Thomas um, was really quite a violent person and had threatened to kill her on numerous different occasions, which she eventually got a restraining order against him and divorced him. So apparently Thomas also liked to brag about his crimes and proudly called himself a career criminal and his ex-wife also believed that he had no problem hurting people to get what he wanted. There was another ex-wife who told investigators the company Thomas kept was no better than he was, telling them of a conversation that she had overheard between his friends. They were laughing and boasting over a murder they had apparently got away with in the 70s. And she also remembered an evening where he had um, stormed out the house with a gun to go and take care of someone who owed him money. She would frequently see the bloody and beaten aftermath of people who crossed him and she remembered a time he used the butt of one of his guns to get his point across. In February 2014, a few months later, the investigators made a surprise visit to Thomas. 
They told him that the forensic evidence had been collected at the scene of Everett Delano's murder in 1966, and this evidence linked him to the crime. Now, at this time, Thomas refused to speak and asked for a lawyer, uh, but there was also a search warrant carried out to try and find this weapon, but they didn't find anything. But four days later, on February the 24th, 2014, the police received a call from Thomas's girlfriend, Jane. Thomas Cass had shot himself with a 45 caliber handgun and died at the age of 67. Jane, his girlfriend, believed the police were coming to arrest him that day, so he beat them to the chase and he just refused to go back to prison. In 2014, the Delano family were told about the fingerprint match and that their suspect had died by suicide. Now, with his death, they said that they were confident who the killer was and that they would make an official announcement and issue their findings in a report. And this report actually took five years to produce. So four years later, in November 2018, the CCU interviewed Jane again about Thomas, possibly hoping they could get some more information or confirmation you know beyond reasonable doubt that he was the killer but she said that thomas had never said anything to her the only thing she said that he had said once was something along the lines of quote keeping quiet when you commit a crime that has statute of limitations end quote Four months after this, on February 20th, 2019, the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit finally released its formal report of Everett Delano's murder and announced that after 52 years, this case had finally and officially been solved. Now, in response to this news, the Delano family issued a statement, and I'm going to read that for you now. Quote, Our family would like to take the opportunity to not only thank the initial investigators of our father's homicide, but also the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit. Without their diligent efforts, we would not be here today. We are happy this day has come where our family has been given a small measure of justice. For almost 53 years, our family has wondered what happened on September 1st, 1966. There was a very long time our family didn't know if we would ever receive the answers about what happened that day, but today our family has the long overdue answers we have been waiting for. End quote. And that does conclude today's case. Um, it's a really sad case and in a way Everett um, and his family never really got the justice they deserved in a sense. You know, in the end Thomas took his own life to evade the law but I suppose the Delana family does have some peace knowing that Everett's killer isn't still out there. Um, but on the other hand Everett's story still is one of hope you know the fact that the police were able to solve this case even after all those years is absolutely incredible um technology is always evolving and there is still hope for all those other cold cases out there that might just be solved even if it is decades later now thank you very much for listening um don't forget to follow the show and leave a five-star review if you have enjoyed today's episode it really does help more than you know And also, don't forget to head over to the Pride for Crime TikTok page where I post small snippets of cases and any updates on episodes that come out, etc. 
so that's me for today thank you very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your week and i will see you next time see you later